Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 17th, 2022, and before we get to today's episode, I have some fun housekeeping work to take care of. First of all, I plan to do an episode coming up on greed, discussing Adam Smith and Leo Tolstoy. The Tolstoy will be taken from his short story, Master and Man. It is a fabulous story, but to avoid spoilers, you might want to read it before the conversation. We'll link to the story in the notes from this episode. I also want to share the results from the listener poll of your favorite episodes of 2021. By the way, you can find past favorites, the results of past year's polls, by going to econtalk.org. Along the top, you'll see a bar. It's teal-colored near the top that includes browse by category. Use the category favorites annual top 10 to find out past episodes, past year's favorites. For 2021, here are the top 10 episodes, which is actually 12. Number 10 was a three-way tie. Sebastian Younger on Freedom, Lamorna Ash on Dark Salt Clear, and Don Boudreau on Buchanan. Number nine, Jason Riley on Race in America. Number eight, Tyler Cowen on The Pandemic Revisited. Number seven, Dana Joya on Learning, Poetry, and Studying with Miss Bishop. Number six, Megan McArdle on Belonging Home and National Identity. Number five, Mike Munger on Free Markets. Number three, a two-way tie, Daniel Shoup on Parking, and Mike Munger's second appearance in the top five, Munger on Constitutions. And a tie at number one for your favorite episode of 2021, Sam Quinones on Meth, Fentanyl, and the Least of Us, and Rowan Jacobson on The Truffle Hound. I want to thank the 1,300 or so people who voted. Many thanks. And now for today's guest, psychologist Angela Duckworth. She is the Rosalie and Egbert Chang Professor of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and the founder and CEO of Character Lab, a nonprofit whose mission is to advance scientific insights that help children thrive. She first appeared in Econ- on Econ Talk in July of 2016 talking about grit. Angela, welcome back to Econ Talk. Russ, it's good to be with you. Tell us about Character Lab. What's it do? Well, Russ, I started Character Lab. It's a nonprofit um, about a decade ago. Met two educators who said, you know, as teachers, we have this intuition that there's all this science coming out on on motivation, on um, on emotion, growth mindset, gratitude. I wonder, each of them said to me separately and then in a chorus, you know, I wonder whether scientists should get together with teachers and also with parents and share some of the science of human development because it would make us better. It would make us better teachers. It would make us better parents. And I thought that was a great idea. Um, I, you know, was just starting out in some ways as a, you know, young professor. I thought maybe this wasn't the wisest use of my time from a strategic sense. But, you know, I, I usually just do things that I have a gut instinct are, are the right thing to do. So we started this nonprofit. We called it Character Lab after Aristotle. Um, and character, I think, is a polarizing word. But then again, what's not polarizing these days? Um, I, I'm, I'm a fan, so I'm, I'm on the side of character. Because when Aristotle said uh, that the good life, you know, the life that's worth living 
as a life that's good for others and, and good for yourself, you know, as much as for others as for yourself. Um, and, and when you talked about virtue, I mean, I think essentially he was talking about all the ways of thinking, feeling, and acting that we habitually do that are indeed good for others and good for ourselves. And I think character um, uh, has another uh, historical reference that, that I think of every time I say the word, and that's Martin Luther King, who when he was um, just 18 or 19, he was a, a college freshman um, at Morehouse. And he said, um, you know, uh, if you think about education, the purpose of education, character plus intelligence, you know, that is the true purpose uh, of education. So uh, we think that the science of, of human development, you know, all the ways that kids learn to grow up to be, to thrive for themselves and for others, um, that's, that's worth having a nonprofit uh, dedicated to. And, and what we do materially is we connect researchers who study, you know, mindset and gratitude and curiosity and learning and more with teachers to do research, but also with teachers and parents to share research findings and um, it's been about a decade and I'm, you know, not only on the side of character, I am on the side of science. And I think when you ask the question, you know, what will be different about the 21st century? And when you ask the question, why should we be hopeful about the 21st century? To me, there's a revolution in psychological literacy uh, based uh, not just on intuition, but based on science. Yeah, long-time listeners, even probably short-time listeners, I know I'm a little bit skeptical about the scientific content. We may get into that in the course I'd of our conversation. I'd love to get into that. <laughs> But I want to start with a more basic question about character itself, which is uh, we're going to be talking about an unpublished essay that you, you shared with me called The Big Picture. And one of the things you say in there is that character is an old-fashioned word. I would say even more strongly, it's a word that's out of fashion. It's a concept that's out of fashion. The idea that education, that teaching and uh, that development should inculcate character. Uh, is is out of fashion and, in fact, I would say looked down on as, a, as often a negative. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And, and do you, it, it, are you thinking of the word differently than they do or, or in a similar way? I think and the, just defending it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Russ, that that character is for many people, you know, not only old fashioned, but out of fashion. Some would argue not only out of fashion, but should be out of school. In particular, um, and I'll I'll take the stance that um, if you if you look back historically, of course that wasn't always the case, right? You know, when children learn to read, very often when you ask like, well, what stories are we going to you know give to children as they learn their letters and their sounds? You know, so often there were these like essentially moral tales, um, and I would contend that to this day, children's stories very often have a moral to the story. You teach them about honesty, you teach them about kindness. You teach them about courage uh, through these stories. And I don't think that's wrong. I think that's very right. And I think there is a place, of course, a primal, uh, you know, primary place for that to happen in the family. Uh, you know, parents teaching their kids the values that are important to live by. But I think that the crucible of character development also includes school, which is where children and teenagers spend, um, you know, so many of their waking hours, right? And it's the second most, uh, you know, like frequent place that a, a child finds themselves after the home. Um, and, and I think when you ask the question, like, what role specifically should schools have in, in character development? I think, and I reflect on my own childhood and my own upbringing, you know, next to my parents, uh, my teachers 
and my classmates were my role models. Um, and absolutely to this day, you know, I remember certain lessons that I learned uh, from from teachers and and from from peers as well, you know, that that made me who who I am. So I think character development is in some ways old fashioned, in some ways out of fashion, uh, in some ways could be um, argued with. Um, but I think that if you say, you know, well, schools are no place to teach honesty, persistence, uh, optimism, gratitude, then then what you're really saying is that we're just not going to do it intentionally because young people are going to learn those lessons uh, from the people around them one way or the other. And it raises an interesting question. In a way, what you just said is is so inarguable. Who could disagree with that? Who wouldn't want their children to be kind and honest and grateful just to take three nice virtues that we like to think our kids could acquire? And yet, it does seem like it's out of fashion. Why would you think that could be? What has happened to education that that, especially in the K, you know, K through eight, K through twelve level, why is that controversial? Any ideas? I haven't thought about it. Any ideas? I think there are two reasons: one more obvious, and one less obvious about why some people want to kick character development out of school. The more obvious. Uh, argument, and again, I don't agree with it, but the argument is that schools should not be the place where you teach prescriptive norms. In other words, what ought to be, you know, values, what what's right and what's wrong. That's a matter of personal choice. That's a matter of family choice. And of course, you can point historically to times in American history where the teaching of, you know, values, you know, how you should believe about other people's race or, or sexuality, you know, you can certainly point to episodes in history where that has, you know, taken a dark turn. Um, but again, I think the vacuum, you know, pretending that there is any such thing as a vacuum. I mean, you know, let's take honesty, for example. And again, I'm, I'm going with this most obvious cause for the backlash, if you will, against character development but I'm not agreeing with it. Um, if you say like, well, you know, honesty is something that's taught in the home, you know, by mom and dad. And, you know, there's no place to discuss that in the classroom. But if there's cheating in the school and the teacher says, you know, X or the teacher says Y or the teacher says Z, I mean, you are teaching something about honesty, whether you like it or not. There's an implicit curriculum for character development. I'm arguing that it should be more intentional and not accidental. And I am arguing, and, and here too, I, I'm sure I have um, uh, opponents. I, I believe that there is scientific research on, you know, what the brain does when you tell a lie and, you know, how, how we come to be honest people, how we perceive honest people, and every other dimension of character as well. So um, I'm not only arguing for uh, character development to be more intentional, but also uh, more, more based on on research, which we can get into. Because I'm not saying that every scientific finding that's been published uh, is true. But but I want to um, Russ say something about the less obvious uh, countercurrent um, against character, and I think um, in 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 some ways this is actually more from the left than from the right. So there's, there is a, a kind of a conservative element of like, well, that's not for schools. I really want this to stay in the home. But on, on the progressive side, on the left wing side, there is a kind of um, the word character sounds like it's fixed. Um, it sounds like blame the victim. Um, and, you know, if you take a very progressive liberal stance on, on education, you know, you, you could also resist that phrase. I, I find um the the left likes a term which I think is roughly synonymous, which is social and emotional learning. 
Um, so if you've ever heard the um, uh, initialism SEL, that's, that's a, a term that educators use a lot. I don't think parents use it uh, as often. But, but you know, that, that's a kind of more minor quibble. That's kind of a, a quibble with terminology and a, a desire to um, note these personal qualities as things that are less fixed and also, um, you know, that allow there to be in the picture, um, you know, society and structure and so forth, none of which I disagree with. But it's a deep question, which we're, we'll get into in a little bit about this question of fixedness and, and whether a person can build character, whether a person can change themselves, and whether some people are more able to do that because of their situation rather than some I – mean, we have this, I think, a little – bit of romance about our innate ability to pull our emotional well-being up by its bootstra- their bootstrap. I don't even know how to – I'm going to stop that <laughs> metaphor. But um, the other thing I wanted to observe, though, that I think is interesting about what you're saying uh, about the school versus the family is that school has that uh, unique opportunity where you're interacting with lots of people across a wide range of intimacy. At home, they're all your family. They're your parents. They're your siblings. In school, you've got your close friends, your pretty good friends. There might be some people, your enemies, people you don't like, people who bug you, people who annoy you. And I think the one of the virtues of a character-based educational system, if such a thing is possible and desirable, one of the arguments you'd make for it is that this it's a it's a lab, it's it's a, a place where you can actually see a wide range of human interaction that you want to get your children good at. You know, outside the family, I, I'm Chinese, um, as, as you know, and um, Confucius, uh, at least the way I was taught. So I, I hope I'm not misinterpreting Confucius. But uh, Confucius, I was taught, you know, said that all morality begins in the home. And so because you cannot kill your brother, uh, but you want to, you know, you learn you learn what it means to be a, a kind and civil person. And then you just extrapolate that to the people who are outside of your home. Um, but one could make the argument that much of character development, much of becoming a person uh, who is good, you know, who who um, shows up in the world uh, for the good of others, actually happens outside of the home. Um, and 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 you know, character lab is a, a a name we chose to emphasize science. But you could make the argument, just thinking about it as as you're talking to me, Russ, that school is a character lab, right? And you're right. You know, you have. Um, as Confucius said, you know, people that you sort of want to throttle, but you can't inside the home. But absolutely, when you are in junior high school, like, think of all the people you really wanted to, you know, push or shove or do something not so great to. And and then you learned not to do that. I do think also that you learn um, uh, to have empathy, you know, with people that are your friends, but also, you know, not quite your friends, but your your classmates. So there is a lot of character development. I mean, uh, in, in education, we just think about, you know, how we grow up to be the people that we are. Um, I think one thing that I would uh, agree with the Aristotelian view is that character is a habit. Character is not something that you either have or, or don't at birth, uh, but it's, you know, crafted over a life. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, so much of who we are when we grow up is because of those early school experiences. Um, and I remember to this day, you know, conversations, not only teachers in particular, like literally specific conversations, um, 
you know, I had a, a English teacher, Mr. Carr, and it was just, I, I, I found, I tracked down a classmate. I mean, I graduated from high school in 1988. I had uh, Mr. Carr twice, once my, I think sophomore year, and, and I think once my senior year, but definitely it was two years um, out of four. And I, I went and tracked down one of my classmates from when we were seniors. Um, so this is now, you know, three decades more ago. And I was like, do you remember that time where we cheated on that test? I think it was Faulkner, you know, could have been the Grapes of Wrath. And, and you know, we were trying to remember, but he was like, oh, you mean that test that he gave us where like, remember Mr. Carr liked to like, you know, take random vocabulary words out of the book and, and ask us to like, remember where they had appeared and to define them. And I was like, oh, I, I, if my memory serves, you know, like I feel like on one of those things, like I slash we cheated, like he left the room and everyone was like, what the heck is this? And and my recollection was that um, Mr. Carr came back into the room and um, without raising his voice, um, you know, uh, like gave us that kind of like withering, I'm disappointed in you, you have failed me, um, look, that made me think to myself, I will never ever in my life cheat on anything. Um, and, and those, those indelible conversations, right? Like that to me is character development that oh, happened sure. outside of the home. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think I've mentioned Miss Kinnean on this program before, which is my eighth grade teacher. And she had an impact on more than my character. A lot of the people in that, in that class uh, were changed by her. Uh, and I, I did track her down and wrote her a long letter Decades later, I recommend it if, if Mr. Carr is still alive and thank him. I did. I wrote it and I got some classmates of mine to also write letters of, Excellent. of, of Excellent. gratitude. Yeah. Excellent. So your work, a lot of your work, you're certainly your uh, last time you were here on Econ Talk, you, you talk a lot about grit, about perseverance, uh, which is clearly a character trait. Uh, what do you think we've learned about whether grit can be and perseverance can be taught? learned and so on obviously human beings are complicated we're a mix of traits some of our traits are more mutable than others some people have trouble sticking with tasks others relentlessly buckle down uh can grit be improved and you've of course thought and done work since we first talked on this so give me where are you where are your thoughts these days I like, Russ, when you said, can grit be improved? Because uh, there's a little hesitancy with can grit be taught, only just in that, you know, it sounds like you're teaching someone, you know, like how to play tennis or, or, or you know, solve a, a, an algebra equation. And there's something about grit developing that feels like, oh, the teacher just saying, oh, like this. And, you know, the student saying, oh, right, like that. that. That isn't quite right. But I strongly believe that grit can be encouraged. I strongly believe that grit can be improved. And I do actually believe there is a role for a teacher uh, in, in the development of grit. Uh, I have, since writing that book, um, of course, you know, felt that, uh, you know, which I did before I wrote the book, that grit's not the only thing that should be encouraged or, or taught uh, or developed. But uh, when, you, when you ask the question, can, can it be? I've, I've created a course called Grit Lab and uh, the class is an undergraduate class. I now teach it to Wharton MBAs. And actually, last year, I started teaching it to high school students. And the idea of the course is that, you know, everything that I do is really just trying to understand and reverse engineer achievement and effort, right? Like when somebody does great things, what do they do? You know, what are their habits? What are their mindsets? 
uh, what are the skill sets they've developed. And the idea of reverse engineering is simply that if we can demystify achievement, if we can say, look, you know, what you didn't see in the YouTube highlight reel was that they did this in the morning, they did this in the afternoon, they did this on the evenings, you know, this is how they had conversations, here's how they developed relationships with mentors. And that's what the course is. It's, it's a class where there's, you know, 14 topics. We, we talk about the science of interest, which is, of course, the seed of passion. You know, you can't stay with something for very long unless you're interested in it. We talk about the science of values uh, and, and the magic of doing things that really feel aligned with your personal identity um, and your aspirational personal identity, the person you want to be. We talk about uh, the science of deliberate practice, you know, how experts get better in the most efficient way. So what does high quality effort look like? We talk about mindset and resilience, the stress response and, and more. And I think to me, if you ask, why did you create this course called Grit Lab? To me, I think that beyond nudges, you know, the behavioral economics approach of, of changing behavior, you know, make retirement savings the default, check off the box uh, so that when someone gets to that part of the form, being kind of lazy or just making assumptions that everybody else has checked off the box, they just go with it or put the water bottles at eye level and put the soda out of reach. These nudges, I think, have um, enormous benefits. They're cost effective because they are nearly cost-free and they can make small changes uh, in human behavior that are beneficial. But to me, the idea of character and character development is, is changing the person, not just changing the situation. And that has the possibility for enduring benefit and for, I guess, for lack of a better word, spillover effects, right, in, in other realms of your life. And as a mom, you know, of two daughters, you know, I'm, I'm not out to kind of like architect their environment so that all their choices end up being optimal. I'm interested in developing two young women who everywhere they go have a character that will enable them to do good for themselves and for others. So Grit Lab, I think in some ways, is my attempt at character development in, in an intentional way. And, and, and I'll say, Russ, you know, one other you know, difference, and it was very um, um, purposeful on my part, is that nudges happen to you. You know, nobody has like a big sign up that says like, hey, we're about to default you into retirement savings. In fact, one could argue that the, the nudges work better when you don't notice them. Right. But my class is exactly the opposite. It's an it's an elective. You have to take it, it doesn't count for any major, in other words. Um, and and when you enter the class, I say this class is designed to teach you the science of passion and perseverance for long term goals. And it is designed to change you. So if you do not want to change your passion and perseverance for long-term goals, there's nothing wrong with you, but you probably shouldn't take this class. Yeah, so I, I love that, um, or part of me loves it. There's a part that doesn't love it, and I, let me talk about both. Um, I, I think a large part of growing up is learning who you are and um, who you want to be, which are two, we hope, I hope, two different things. Because yeah, hopefully there's a little space off, there. Yeah, we start off unformed in so many ways. And you know, one of the deepest things I learned, I'd say, in the last 10 years came from a conversation with you. And I put it um, I put it front and center in my new book, uh, Wild Problems, which is this insight of, of Harry Frankfurt that uh, we don't just have wants or desires. We have desires about our desires, or we can. There second, are order, who, second order desires, he calls them, right? Yeah, and that, that was um, – that essay of his, which we'll put a link up to, is, is a hard essay. Uh, but it's accessible to any thoughtful person. It, it's a really fantastically provocative idea. 
And so that idea of, of figuring out who you are, which is very complicated, you have certain labels you can describe yourself, but your deep, um, your flaws, your strengths, learning to see yourself that way uh, somewhat from the outside is very challenging. And then once you're able, but if you're able to do that, you can then imagine who you might be. And that to me is in many ways what life is about. It's that the, those two things. And it's hard to teach those things. And if you're not careful, and I would never accuse you of this, Angel, but I want to see if you agree with me, the, the whole idea of a life hack, the whole idea that, oh, I've got this great trick for you. I just put the cookies, you know, whatever it is. And for some things like the cookies, the soda, whatever you're, you're trying to avoid, putting them away, further away, upstairs, you know, adding to the cost, nudges that you do to yourself, th- those are phenomenal. I, I think they're good things to learn. But a lot of the things that are, I think, essential to the life well-lived are harder than the things you might learn in a class. And I'm curious if, I, I, I don't, what do you think of that? Well, I'd love you to elaborate on the harder things, right? Not just the hacks, like, oh, I probably shouldn't have Girl Scout cookies in the house because I'm going to eat all of the Thin Mints in one sitting, um, which most of us have done at least once. Yeah. Um, but yeah. what are those harder things that you might have in mind, Russ, that are not exactly in this category? So one of the things, I mean, I would put, I think a lot of these challenges that we're talking about, you and I are joking about the cookies, but they're about forms of self-control and, and grit and perseverance are, are just one aspect of that. Um, making sacrifices for others that that aren't just make you, don't just make you feel good. Mm. Uh, in fact, they might not make you feel good. They might hurt, uh, but mm. you might do them anyway. And why, under what circumstances, thinking about what those circumstances might be. I, you know, I like to use the example of a funeral of someone that, that you were close to. And it's so easy to rationalize not going. I mean, the person's dead. You could say they're not going to know whether I'm there or not. I'm re- in fact, they won't. They don't even want me to go. They probably would prefer that. I- <laughs> right. You can always create that. And you're wondering whether um, uh, there is a kind of education, a kind of character development, which is qualitatively different for the big decisions of, yeah, you know, about exactly. who we are. Okay. Well, well that's me, a yeah. small one. That's a small one in a way. I think it's actually not really a small one, those right. kind of decisions. And I would just say, here's a life hack that I like. And so I'm not against life hacks. When you're in a situation like that and you have a dilemma, it's not a bad idea to get outside counsel. So that you, meaning a friend, a loved yep. one, a, a, a you know, a confidant, a mentor, who might be able to help you step outside your usual Take some urges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Take and some get some perspective outside so, the ego perspective. Yeah. So I, I, you need both. You need a life hack. You need some deeper thinking. I think about who you want to be and and who you are. That's that's what I'd say. I agree, right? So you could say that there are some kind of trivial small C character choices that we make. You know, you might regret eating a whole box of Thin Mint cookies, but, you know, it's not the kind of thing on your deathbed that you're going to worry too much about. I mean, unless you do it every day. Um, uh, I, I also think there are like kind of- You may get there sooner. Almost certainly. If you want to say that there are- big C character choices, right? Like the more significant ones. And, and Russ, you, you, you give, you give the example of a funeral. I, um, I had this exact choice uh, last week, um, dear friend uh, and a prominent scholar, Seagal Barsade, who was a Wharton professor uh, died. Um, she was 56 and um, it was a year long battle with a brain tumor. So it was both expected and unexpected. Um, the family uh, and Seagal decided to have the funeral and the burial in Los Angeles. 
and I had a choice. Um, I got an email from Jonathan. Um, you know, I think it was like, you know, two days before I teach on Wednesday nights. Um, I thought to myself, okay, funeral's Thursday morning. Also, I had unmovable commitments on, like, to do a, a, web, a global webinar, you know, in, on the morning, uh, like, before that. So, I was looking at all these flights, and I'm thinking, okay, if, 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 like, if I take this flight, and if my husband, you know, spirits me to the airport, and I, you know, get TSA pre, and this works out, and that works out, and if I have a car meet me there, you know, and if I, if I can stay at this particular hotel, you know, if all these things happen, then, then maybe I can go. And it took me about, you know, 30 to 45 seconds to, to decide that that's what I should do. And I'm, I'm actually, Russ, I'm kind of embarrassed that it took me that long. Um, it should have t- taken me one second to say yes. You know, yes. Like, you don't not show up for the funeral of somebody you truly loved. And I have made um, uh, that mistake before. I will tell you that, I, I you know, the, um, the airline gods were with me. Everything worked out. I'm, I'm, I'm forever going to be grateful and proud that I made the right decision. I didn't screw that one up. Um, I will never forget um, the things that were said at the service, which was beautiful. Um, and, um, and I remember thinking, you know, cause I, I take effectively two red eyes to make this all work. And, you know, the next day, <laughs> of course I had my full schedule. I took my office hours with my students by zoom in the parking lot, like walking around with my phone, which I had also timed when to charge it. So it wouldn't die so that I could do all this. And I was, you know, in some ways physically exhausted, but I remember thinking to myself, um, you know, this feels so right. And that to me is also, you know, maybe the hidden side of character. It's not because you'll be richer or that even people will like you more. But when you develop character and when you manifest the aspirational self that you would like to be, but aren't always, it just feels so right. And I don't even know that happy captures the... um, the sense, you know, that, that you have. Um, and I have made a mistake in the past that was not like that. I mean, there were two weddings that I should have gone to that I failed to go to. And I can't exactly remember the exact circumstances. There was also a time when a friend was in the hospital in a different state. And I, I am sure there were extenuating circumstances. And like you said, you know, you can, right. You know, you can say, Oh, a rational agent wouldn't do this. Um, and, and to this day, I regret those um, failures of character of mine. And the question is, you know, is there any role for, you know, a class that you take or, um, some kind of formal character development or, or something that, you know, other than just life experience that enables you to, to develop character, um, more rapidly, I guess, for lack of a better word. And, and I do think so. I mean, you know, when I um, ask myself, like, why did I make different choices this week than I have in the past? I mean, it is in part because of what I've read. It is in part because of things that, you know, wiser people have told me. And it is in part because I've, you know, studied as an academic, you know, self-control. And, and, um, and I understand better that when we are in difficult choices, like, well, on one hand, I'm exhausted. On the other hand, I should probably go to that wedding. Um, that like, I understand the, the decision-making process better. And I think I am able to make wiser choices because of all of that. And, you know, I think grit or perseverance are part of this. I, you know, I think, I don't know you very well, but I have a feeling you're pretty, um, you're a high achiever. I'm pretty confident about that, and kind <laughs> of focused. Oriented. Yeah, kind of good at 
doing things and not procrastinating and yeah, so I don't on. Procrastinate. <laughs> yeah, good. I don't think not so. Usually, I'm just, again, sometimes. just guessing. But some people, and I'm not going to. I'll I'll let you comment. I think some people see a improving grit or perseverance is is it a matter of productivity. It's a question of being better workers, being a better student and being able to then get a better job, make more money, contribute more to the economy. And I hate that. I'm just going on a limb. Uh, and, and I think that's the wrong way to think about it. And I wonder how you think about it and whether you are part of, I think a lot of people, I assume there are people who like your work just for that reason and nothing else. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. I think people who would hear that Russ Roberts and Angela Duckworth don't think that the point of grit ultimately is just productivity would be surprised, right? Because, you know, a Chicago economist and somebody who writes all about achievement and fills her um, book with examples of, you know, Olympic athletes and uh, Nobel laureates, um, it would be an obvious inference to make. Um, And uh, it's true that I I do believe that, um, you know, when you want to reverse engineer excellence, it's, it's in a way, it's like the easy thing to do is to like, look at who has won an award or done something that has objectively been deemed excellent by society. But here's what I think the ultimate telos, right? The ultimate point of, of grit is, right? The end of that. Um, I, think, I think what happiness is, um, is, is alignment of your goals. There is a kind of, um, I'm doing my wants and my second order wants. I'm doing what I want to want and what I want. And, and there isn't a lot of conflict of sort of like, oh, but I'm tortured. You know, when I look at really gritty people who pursue with a kind of a, a, a passion that they don't have any other words for other than romantic terms, I love what I do. Um, I'm passionate about what I do. I mean, these are the terms that we would use for for our our husband, our wife. You know, uh, these are the kind of people who um, feel unconflicted. You know, if you imagine that a person is a collection of arrows, so the the cover of Grit, which of course is done by an artist, not me. I, you know, it's got this big arrow going to the right, and then all these little arrows that are against you. And the idea is like, you know, you're gritty and you're opposing all the outside forces, right? But you know what? What gritty people are? If 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 you could look inside, like they are a bunch of arrows. The thing is that their goals are all pointing in the same direction. Like they have a unity, a kind of a, a purpose that's coherent. And I have felt times in my life, you know, conflict. It's like, oh, I, I kind of should go to medical school because my dad really wants me to go to medical school, but I feel this pull to kids and education. And that was deep conflict and a lot of misery for me and my dad, by the way. Um, I think to me, the telos of grit is this alignment of purpose where, where what you do during the day is aligned with your values. It's aligned with your interests. You know, when you think of the five things that you have to do, they're all part of a whole. They're like, oh, right, because that's because I have a superordinate goal that those five things serve. And to me, that is much more important than did you or did you not win the Nobel Prize? And there is a kind of uh, again, the happiness fails, I think, to describe this, but a kind of um, rightness, a kind of peace, a kind of harmony um, that I at least experience when the more I am like that. And and I hate the corrosive feeling um, of being at war with myself. So grit to me is more about alignment than it is about achievement. Yeah, the word I would use is flourish. You, know, you, you flourish when you 
can harness your skills. Flourish in is a better direction. than happy, right? Like flourishing. Right. Yeah. Right. It's, it means you're harnessing your skills in the direction that you want to use them. But I do think there's – I'm going to pick on economics for a minute. You know, the, the, In economics, we're always talking about maximizing. And I think if we're not careful, we forget about exploration. Uh, in, the, in my new book, I talk about uh, we're really good at getting to where we need to go, but we don't spend enough time thinking about where we want to go in the first place. And there's a lot to be said for wandering. Not aimless wandering, not mindless wandering necessarily, a little bit of that at times. But, I, you know, I think the the risk of overemphasizing grit or perseverance or success or whatever, however you want to couch it that's less uh, material, the, the idea of getting the most out of life, which is something I've used myself, which I now have some regret about using that phrase, because it, it – it's it's always forward, forward, forward. Like overcome those other arrows. Get get ahead, get ahead, get right. ahead. Leap over that and, obstacle. Yeah, nothing's going to stop me. Nothing can stop me. And there's sometimes you should stop. There's there's some things you're pursuing that actually they might not be so good for you, or you might not. They might not be your best interest, like going to medical school. It's okay to give up because you realize, hey man, this is not me. It's not what I want. And I think that tension between what we might call persistence, perseverance, grit, and thoughtfulness. Uh, mindfulness, um, uncertainty. Yeah, and wandering, you know, right? Exploration. Yeah. So let me um, suggest that the the key word here is toggling, right? I, I agree with you that if you think about grit as being, you know, steadfastly pursuing a goal and just like one step in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, um, you know, relentlessly without rest, um, that that doesn't allow very much that mental picture for wandering, for exploration, for saying like, wait a second, before taking one more step in this, this direction, like maybe I'm even heading for the wrong mountain range, yeah. right? So um, I think the toggling is is this. Um, and, and whether you call this all sort of what grit really is, if you really understand it, or if you think that's a cheat and you just want to say like grit has to be toggled with this other thing um, is kind of semantics, but but the toggling is um, is I think what uh, uh, a lot of um, uh, ethologists who study animal behavior would be would call the the tension between the exploration um, and exploitation modes of foraging, for example. So if you are a little bird and you come upon a new meadow, you know, and you start you know picking um, you know seeds out of the grass or worms, right? And and you know th- this little patch is pretty good, right? You have a choice at any time to move on to a new patch and to explore. I don't know, maybe that patch over there is even better. Maybe there are more worms and seeds. Um, Or you can exploit this patch, right? And that's the exploration exploitation trade-off. You always have to make this choice. And there's a cost either way, which is opportunity cost. And the uh, question is like, when does the bird move? And one could argue that that's essentially what we have in life. You know, should I try this you know, completely different direction, read a different book, you know, uh, try a different internship, or should I just really specialize and go forward in this one direction? So should I explore or should I exploit? Um, so so I think one thing that the animal, be, animal behavior scientists would agree is that the trade-off um, has a certain dynamic, which is, first of all, it's never like all of one or the other. Um, so there's always a toggling. Um, they would also say, I think, early on in in a in a in a meadow that you're exploring or in a lifespan, um, exploration is um, privileged because you just don't know, 
right? So the calculus benefits exploration because you know less and you also have longer to live to exploit. And then, of course, if you're like towards the end of your life and you're just trying to figure out who you are and what you want to do, you know, and you're 80, like that, then then you've sort of gotten the calculus wrong because, you know, the clock is running out and also you should have had 80 years to figure out a lot. So, so, so then exploitation is favored. So the toggling has a kind of lifespan shift from one, you know, center of gravity to the other. But there's new research by uh, somebody who I absolutely think you should have as a guest. Uh, Russ, he's so brilliant. His name is Dashan Wong. And he was a physicist, but he became a Kellogg professor um, not too many years ago. Um, and he, like me, is, is kind of obsessed with achievement and with the dynamics of human excellence. Um, and what he's done is applied kind of artificial intelligence and like very sophisticated modeling techniques to enormously large data sets to ask questions about, for example, the value of exploration versus the value of exploitation. And one of my favorite papers, he identifies that um, these periods of exploitation of a good idea can be uh, called hot streaks. And he looked at three large data sets, um, scientists, uh, painters, and Hollywood, um, or anyway, movie directors. I guess they don't have to all be in Hollywood. And he has these like three big databases and he can measure uh, impact of your work through, you know, uh, you know, citations or, you know, how much your painting sold at auction or, you know, IMDB ratings. Um, and what he finds is that across these three very different creative professions, there are hot streaks that last between four and five years. Uh, the modal number is one. So most people have a hot streak, but most of them uh, relative to themselves. I mean, they're not all Steven Spielberg, but, you know, for themselves, they have a high impact period of their career. And, um, and, and you know, very few people have two. It's exceedingly rare to have three. But the most interesting thing to me about what fell out of this um, research was that um, Dashan wanted to know, like, what, what begins a hot streak? Like, where do they come from? And what he found is that there's a period of exploration. I mean, he uses Van Gogh as an example. So Van Gogh really struggled for a time, uh, mostly when he was painting in Paris and and before the paintings we all know and love, right? You know, the sunflowers and so forth. Um, And and if you look at the paintings that Van Gogh did while he was in Paris, I mean, they're not bad, right? But, you know, they're not also as good as as the ones that we all um, uh, recognize. And during that period of exploration, he was trying different techniques. He was he was quitting certain things that were like mm, kind of dead ends. And then when he moved to the south of France, um, he had a, a, a hot streak. He had a period of exploitation of techniques that, um, you know, emerged during the exploration period as really terrific. He uses Jackson Pollock as another example. And, you know, there, there are, of course, others. And I think to me, it says that when people ask the question, like, I want to be excellent at what I do. I want to have, you know, a goal that I'm aligned to in every possible way. It doesn't mean really that you have to put one foot in front of the other without rest, you know, for your whole life. It means that you might need to toggle between periods of, you know, extraordinary focus. And then just as you said, Russ, a kind of wandering. Um, but I'll add this final note on all of this um, research, which is that um, uh, if you look at uh, Van Gogh's life in more detail, so David Epstein, um, you know, the, the writer we both admire and uh, somebody who's um, thinking I admire a lot, you know, he, like me, got a little obsessed with Dashan Wong's paper and he wrote a short essay about this. It's on his website where, you know, he, he finds a, a letter that Van Gogh wrote to his brother um, before he had the hot streak, right? And, and, and just, the, just the angst and the torture of, like, not knowing where you're going is so clear. But I think uh, David's um, essay makes a beautiful point, which is that there is a difference between wandering 
without any intention of ever having some focus and wandering with the intention to have some focus. And I think that kind of wandering where you know you're exploring, but you hope at some point to be walking in a slightly straighter line with you know more progress. Um, I think that I think that really is qualitatively different. And when I reflect on my own life, you know, I wandered for 10 years between graduating from college and starting my PhD. And that was a torturous 10 years. But I will tell you, Russ, I was wandering with intention. I knew I wanted to be an expert in something. I was not content to do things for one year at a time, two years at a time, uh, and constantly making pivots. While you were talking, I was thinking of David Epstein because his book, Range, which we talked about here on Econ Talk, certainly talks about the value of trying different things. Um, And... uh, I think it came up in my episode with Lauren Buckman on his book, Make to Know, where a lot of times you're waiting to see what emerges, but it's not mindless waiting. You're attentive, and and that's what the wandering ideally is. Although the sense is, it's okay to wander aimlessly now and then, I think. Um, yeah, you I can have a little of, wandering for your own sake, too. Exactly. You know, and that's, keeps, that's not to say battery. everything has to be intentional. Right. And I also thought about, you know, we had Ben Cohen on here talking about the hot hand, which is very much about these these episodes of, of incredible productivity, uh, where, again, productivity isn't just you're making more widgets, uh, just your soul sort of comes to life and you you have your greatest work uh, for a great artist like like Van Gogh. But I want to take us in a different direction. I want to throw you a curveball that you're, something you said reminded, thought, made me think about. You're talking about the bird. The bird in the meadow and Travis to decide whether to focus on this particular patch or whether to start, try to explore something else. And I, I've been looking at a lot of birds lately, uh, walking to work, which I hadn't been doing before. And I'm on the streets of Jerusalem and we've got these big hooded crows. They're pecking at stuff. They're really interesting looking birds. And we have smaller birds. And, and you have to think, you have to ask yourself, how intentional is that? That bird, you know, the brain of that bird is really, really small. And we don't really bird brain bird. Yeah, well said. And we don't I don't think we know much about the animal world and how much they look ahead. I think very little, but I'm open minded about that agnostic. I'm assuming it's possible they look ahead more than we would imagine with their brains. But they're small and the bird is, is very impulsive. You can see it pecking and looking and nervous and shooting over here and shooting over there and you know if you if you had a uh, a cam on the bird and some there are such you can watch them i think there are such things you know bird spends its day flitting here to there over here maybe chasing things running away from things and the same thing is happening all around us in jerusalem we've got this great uh population of feral cats here that I happen to like and photograph. And some of them are fed by strangers, which is really interesting. But they're all street cats. They're just they're just wandering around of different colors and shapes. And I'm thinking, what's going on in there? You know, they're wandering around here. Some are relatively friendly. They'll look at me and I'll take their picture. And you can, it's as almost as if they're saying, yeah, I appreciate that. And others <laughs> are like, you're taking my picture. How dare you? And they run away. And some are afraid of me, just like human beings. And then I think, are we that different? I have a colleague here at Shalom College in the philosophy department, Yuval Delev, and he says, you know, maybe how much of our actual decision-making is intentional? 
Mm-hmm. You know, Versus so reactive. many of the things that happen, not even reactive. We don't even understand why we're oh, all you mean of a like just automatic and you know, you know not find even ourselves processed. in some we find ourselves in some new situations, like, and we'll tell ourselves a story as to why we made that decision, uh, but really we're kind of the whim of certain things. He's not saying that's what he believes, but he's, he wonders about it. And it's a thoughtful question. So my question is, am I really that different from the bird and the cat? <laughs> I mean, I think I am. I like to think I am. And I, and I wrote a book about decision-making and, and you wrote a, written a book about control and grit and you teach a class on it. And are we living in illusion here? Are we really, do we have the free will that we think we have to mold ourselves? Or are we just telling us ourselves a story after the fact? Well, let's start with how we're the same as as a big black crow, right? Or a feral cat. And then let's talk about how we're different because I think we are both the same and we are different. So um, uh, I I do think that more and more uh, behavioral scientists, uh, including Wendy Wood, who's, you know, arguably the world expert on habits. um, And she has a book and um, it's called Good Habits, Bad Habits. uh, And I recommend it. Um, She has discovered in her recent research that uh, so much of our behavior is unconscious. Um, It's habitual and we make up stories. So she has a study where, um, you know, you uh, in careful ways, you know, measure, you know, how much coffee people drink and, you know, when they drink it, but, but also you ask them, you know, why did you drink coffee that day? And they always have a reason, you know, they, they think, oh, because I was tired, you know, because I really needed it. But really, actually, the data suggests a different story, which is that it's just a habit. It's just automatic. And, and just as you say, we create a narrative in retrospect um, that isn't really accurate. So I agree with you that we are like crows and feral cats, um, I guess domestic cats too, right? In, in that I think a lot of uh, our behavior is instinctive, unreflective, um, non-consciously ordered, just it, it, it we, you know, we do it, but, but um, it's not at all the kind of behavior that we recognize as like our choices, um, our decisions um, and our free will. So that's how we are like cats and crows. But I think there is a reason why we have such a big brain, Russ, or at least this is an affordance of having a big brain, especially a big prefrontal cortex, which is one of the key distinguishing features of the human brain, even compared to our closest primates, that we have an enormous prefrontal cortex, right? The most recently evolved part of the brain. And I do believe that research um, because, you know, we have actually put, believe it or not, um, pigeons, for example, maybe not crows, but pigeons into the lab and given them delay of gratification tasks. You know, if you peck this lever, you get a pellet right away. But if you can wait, then you can, you know, like press this lever and then like the, you press the lever and there's a delay but then three pellets come out, right? And we know from that research that uh, there's some ability for a lower order animal than a human to wait, to delay gratification, but not much. So that, so there is a difference in future orientation. Um, I, I think it's um, inarguable that human beings are able to envision with um, HD detail, you know, a, a future five, 10, 20 years from now, people are thinking about what will happen to this planet if we keep going this way in a hundred years. And that does not seem possible for your, for your typical crow 
or cat. Um, and I think the the question that we were coming to earlier, you know, free will and um, the philosopher Harry Frankfurt's idea that perhaps what is uniquely human is that we not only have wants, but we have second order wants. Second orders are what I want to want. The complexity of human thought is not only to envision possible futures, but to ask the question, not only how am I responding, but how do I want to respond? You know, when, when a friend really needs me in the future, you know, I think unlike a crow or a cat, I can say I deeply regret missing those two weddings. I deeply regret not seeing my friend in the hospital. I want to want to go to see the next friend who really needs me. And I am going to change my behavior. So I am a believer in free will and the uniquely human capacity to imagine possible futures and to make at least some choices intentionally. Maybe it's not the majority of my uh, behaviors, but I do believe that at least some of my choices and behaviors um, are, are made with conscious awareness and that I have agency. As beautifully said, I, you know, I, I like to think about the stimulus we face. You know, the crow smells something over here, goes. The cat sees a predator, runs. Um, we have the ability to stand our ground if, in the face of danger and help someone who might need our help. Uh, we have the ability, rare perhaps, but we do. We, I think we have the ability to avoid temptation that that crow has more trouble with maybe than, than we do. I, there's an episode coming out. By the time um, our episode airs, uh, it will have aired. It's, it's been recorded with Luca Delano. He, has a, he calls the brain a confabulation um, device. It basically is its main purpose is to tell us stories about that rationalize what we Lies. do. And he's, he's, he's onto something there, obviously, but you're suggesting, and I think correctly, and he's also interested in this, like, is there room to see if that story is really the one you want to tell yourself, the one that, that you have to listen to, the one only that you, you only tell yourself ex post, maybe you could tell it ex ante if you chose to. But I think a lot of what the self-control or growing up that, that I was referring to at the very beginning of our conversation is about not responding to stimuli, it is to find that space, which is really hard, where instead of impulsively doing what seems that drives you, you thought you think for, you take a breath, you pause, and you think, is this what I want to do? And of course, wandering is, can help you get better at that, I think. Uh, you know, in some ways, it's it's a question of are you going to live life like you're the object of the sentence or are you going to live life as the subject of the sentence? And um, I, I think agency is saying like, you know, I, you know, I ate the cake, you know, not the cake was eaten by me or like, you know, the cake was there. And then, of course, I had to eat it. But like it's I ate the cake. And Walter Michelle, who, of course, was the. Um, uh, you know, one of the greatest uh, psychologists uh, ever. And um, he's, of course, um, passed now, but he invented the marshmallow test to um, measure delay of gratification and the ability to control oneself. He often, as a developmental psychologist, you know, Walter primarily worked with young children. And he would say that when children are born, um, they are entirely stimulus driven, right? You know, like they just react kind of like a crow or a cat, you know, and they're babies. And, and um, you know, it was very influenced by Freud that, you know, which people might not realize because he was a very empirically driven uh, uh, scientist. And of course, um, Freud wasn't. But the term delayed gratification comes from Freud. 
Freud said that uh, when a child matures, um, perhaps the most important thing they are able to do is delay the gratification of their impulses and to not be stimulus driven, you know, for, for our entire lives. And to me, I feel like the project of developing our character is to say, you know, life happens for sure, right? Let's say that life is a stimulus. And I, I do believe that, um, you know, our project in life is to decide how we're going to deal with it. You know, you get a diagnosis of a, of a brain tumor that happens to you, but agentically, you know, when you're the subject of the sense, like, how do you respond to it? Do you respond to it with bravery um, and dignity or, or not? You know, you know, your friend calls you and says, I really need you to come visit. You know, for me, that was a failure of my character. You know, I did not visit my friend. I failed to, um, to, to be loyal in that moment. Um, and the next opportunity I have, I hope I hope not to. So so I do think that there is a kind of, you know, rich philosophical and psychological uh, context in which this, you know, question of whether we're, you know, the objects of the sentence or the subjects of the sentence, um, which is true. And of course, they're both partly true. But I think uh, trying to live life <laughs> with with an idea that you're the subject of the sentence is is, um, is the better way. And you know, certainly Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, is a, an example of what you're talking about, about you know, the things happen to you, but how you respond to them are up to you. How many times people, have you read that? I've read it like six only once. times. I've only oh, read it once. You have and like it, many. It's so good. Keep going. It's just okay, like watching Love Actually. It just gets better and better. You know, Angela, yeah, I've always liked that? you. I've always <laughs> liked you, but now our – my respect for you is taken on. A new oh, level. I didn't know which way that was going to go. Yeah, love we, we actually. Watch that together, Russ. It, it's a barometer. Um, it is. It's a barometer. A lot of people character. hate it. It is. A lot of people hate that movie, which shocks me. I've seen what? it five or six times. I know I it. I know a lot of it by heart. I dislike those people profoundly. Okay, we'll keep that. Maybe we'll edit that out. I'm kidding, yeah. Les. Keep that in. Don't don't edit that out. <laughs> I had planned that we would talk more about this question of, of delayed gratification than, than we ended up talking about. But I do think it's an interesting example uh, that you, you didn't – you mentioned it like everybody knows what it is. But the marshmallow test is this idea that if you can avoid eating the marshmallows in front of you right away and get a larger reward in a few minutes, that that correlated with people's lifetime outcomes, that it was a, a character trait not just a learned behavior. And um, I have to mention that that work has come under attack recently. Some people suggest that it doesn't replicate, it didn't replicate in their work, uh, attempt to, to find that again. But it's a deep question about whether this is an aspect of yourself or whether it's something you can acquire. In other words, is it destiny? If you're if you're a person who can't delay gratification, you'll never be able to go to grad school. You're going to flunk out of et cetera, et cetera, and you won't do well in life. Or is it something you can acquire? And I think that is, as as you point out in, in the essay that we started talking about, is is a really fundamental question about the way psychologists look at the world and human beings. So this is the most important thing that I try to teach my students. I say, you know, the human mind is a kind of either or machine. You know, I want to know what the answer is. Is it either that character is fixed or is it developable? Is it either the person or the situation? And I will say that, you know, the vast majority of scientific research that I'm familiar with on any aspect of human functioning that you can imagine always has the answer of both and. 
right? So let's take the marshmallow test. Um, it has come under attack. I think less because uh, it doesn't replicate, but more because when you, because uh, it, it's a correlational finding that how long you wait for the marshmallow correlates with things like income later on in adulthood. And the major complaint is that if you statistically control for all the things that you ought to, that the correlation is really small. And if, if, if you control for some things, you could argue it's like hardly different from zero. Um, okay, then there's counter arguments, by the way, that, you know, you've kind of controlled for things like self-control. And so, like, of course, the correlation goes down. Yeah. But, um, uh, but, but just to abbreviate, you know, what's obviously a complex um, conversation about that, um, Walter Michel was famous not for one thing, but for two things. One was the creation of the marshmallow test, which was popularly understood as, oh, if how long you can wait for two marshmallows at age four predicts your lifetime income, that's kind of a, you know, your character is destiny. You know, this is a fixed trait because, look, I can measure it at four and, you know, you're still uh, being influenced by it when you're 34 or 44 or 54. Like that's, you know, the popular understanding. But let's let's think about what Walter was also famous for. The other thing that Walter was famous for in psychology is the power of the situation. Um, and, and what Walter uh, was um, getting at was that when we think of, you know, any, any behavior, you know, how you act in the marshmallow test, you know, how you act on the job, you know, whether you decide to cheat on your taxes or not cheat on your taxes is both a function of the person, you know, their character and the situation, not either the person or the situation both the person and the situation and just yeah. to blow minds a little bit because, you know, <laughs> students look at me and they're just like, you know, their, their brows are creased and, you know, their brow, you know, it's like, like they just don't, it's like, I'm like, yeah, right. Cause you're going to have to think really hard about this. When I talk about character, I want you to think of it as both being somewhat stable, right? Like, yeah, I saw Russ in 2016. I have a sense of who Russ is, his values, his, his, uh, you know, his leanings, um, and, uh, you know, his love, love actually, right? Like, you know, that's probably not going to change very much. Um, and so both that there's stability and that there's change. You know, character is both stable and malleable. Um, you know, the behavior of, that we observe in each other and ourselves is both a product of our character and of the situation. So I know this complexity doesn't sell well. It's hard to make a TikTok video. I don't think it'll go viral. But to me, I feel like a lot of the polarization that every country, including the United States, has experienced is, 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 um, is you know, a product of either or thinking. You know, either you believe in this or you believe in that. Is it possible? And I wonder whether you're optimistic or pessimistic about this, that with our big prefrontal cortex, like with our big brains, we could potentially accommodate, you know, the both and reality of human development and, and human nature. Well, I, I try to do my little small part by reminding people that, <laughs> it's, that it's complicated. It's complicated is my way of saying both it's and. Not, it's, 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 it's complicated. It's, yeah. yeah. And so. Nature, nurture. It's complicated. Yeah. Right? It doesn't sell. It doesn't sell that well. But yeah, it's I complicated. Think it's, it's not. Uh, it's not sexy. It's not, <laughs> is that a bumper sticker? But yeah. uh, yet, uh, I'm sure a listener right now will, will prove me <laughs> yes. wrong. Please send us start, bumper stickers. Yeah, well, I would, I'm sure they will. I'm yeah, sure they will. Okay, Somebody will create one. We'll put it up at the Econ Talk. We'll put it on the Econ Talk um, <laughs> put it on my computer. store. We'll put it on our swag store. Um I want to close with a with a comment, something I learned from from Mike Munger, uh, longtime econ talk guest. Uh, he was visiting me one time, and he we were watching uh, one of my kids play uh, baseball in a, on his team. 
on my kid's team. And um, one of my kids, I can't remember what, whether it was the team or my kid, it was a stressful, stressful game. And, you know, is baseball. Baseball particularly can be a particularly challenging um, activity, hitting a fast-moving object with a small stick and or trying to catch it with a small glove. And I said something about sports building character. And he said, sports doesn't build character. It reveals it. And I, it, I still get goosebumps when I think about it because it's, it's, it's certainly true that when you put a 16-year-old or 14-year-old kid in a situation of stress in public in front of their peers and they are on stage and they fail at least two times out of three, usually in baseball as a batter, it's kind of tests a person. How are you going to respond to this? And we're going to watch that in real time and in real space. And um, it's actually a quite beautiful thing, I think, about being a parent. I've not thought about it enough to watch your children encounter. One of the great things I think about your kids kids playing sports is, is to watch that. And I think it, Mike was right, but of course he was wrong. And I think I'm sure he'd agree with us that it both reveals and builds. It, it, it's both. Uh, it's complicated. And your the way you respond to defeat is not uh, destiny. It's not written in your genes. You have a chance. Somebody throws a tantrum or, or doesn't do well after failing has a chance to rise above that. And they may not do it for a long time. It may take them a lifetime, but they can. And I think that's part of what we've been saying today. I think our circumstances both reveal our character and develop our character because human nature, it's complicated. And, and on my gravestone, you know, if they would allow more than one word, then I don't want it to be grit, you know, both and right. Like I I mean, to me, my mission in life for us is to increase psychological literacy. And I think as we move forward into the 21st century, and if we're ever going to come together again as communities um, and, and, and truly develop character, then we have to actually embrace both and its complicated complexity. Um, and I don't think that leaves us like hopelessly confused, actually, um, uh, in the end. I think um, it gives us more agency and compassion at the same time, understanding that we can be the subject of our sentence, but in some ways we're all the object of the sentence. You know, it, it really is uh, both and in, in almost every scenario that I can um, imagine. And I'm glad to have had this conversation because I do think conversations like this um, get us a little closer uh, to that complexity and that nuance. My guest today has been Angela Duckworth. Angela, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. I hope I see you again. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.